I'd like to offer you this prayer. The Lord be with you. My name is Kent. I'm one of the pastors here, and I thought that Leah was going to share another kind of groan. It sounds a lot like, oh, help, but without the P. <laughs> I'm glad she didn't do that with the kids, but the adults here know that is one of our uh, laments sometimes. So we're going to think a little bit about lamenting today by looking at our scripture passage, which is from Exodus chapter 1. So I'd like to invite you to open your Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 1. So the second book of the Bible, Genesis, then Exodus chapter 1. We're actually going to go through three chapters, Genesis or Exodus 1, 2, and 3 this morning. And, uh, and you can blame Pastor Allen for that. We um, do lots of discussion and review and planning for preaching. And one of the constant kind of reviews I get from Alan is that he says, you take too big a chunks of Scripture, and so you need to narrow it down. So I had planned to preach on Exodus 1, and when I sent that to him, he said, you can't just preach on Exodus 1. You've got to do all the way to chapter 3. So we're going to go all the way to 3 today. Um, and then we're actually going to get to the Ten Commandments next week. So you've got to come back next week to get to that part of it. But if you've got Exodus chapter 1, you can read along with me. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly and increased in number and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. And then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth or on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all the people, Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile. But let every girl live. This is God's word, and it's true, and we can rely on it. I've got a little picture here to show you, and I think there was a whole generation of people who grew up thinking that this is what Moses looked like. Remember this movie? Yep, the Ten Commandments. This picture 
is from that movie, and that is, if you're a generation who does not know this movie, that is not Moses, that is Charlton Heston, okay? <laughs> the movie had kind of a curious title because the title of the movie was The Ten Commandments, and yet, if I remember it right, it was about four hours long, and you actually didn't get to the Ten Commandments until like the very last, like, ten minutes of the movie or something like that. It was also a little bit curious because every time they promoted this movie, it was Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments. And as a kid, I remember thinking, he wrote them. (laughs) Anyway, this movie was focused on uh, spectacle. It was also known as having a cast of thousands, if you remember that. And it was a very big movie with lots of really big scenes of them building the store cities for the pharaoh. And there was these really great moments when God shows up in this movie in, in really big ways. So God shows up in the burning bush and you hear the voice of God calling Moses. God shows up in the administration of the plagues against the Egyptians. And, and then God shows up as they're fleeing from the Egyptians and there's that dividing of the Red Sea. And God shows up on the mountainside as Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments and he comes back with you know this glowing on his face. It's a very big mo- movie with very big spectacle, very big moments of God. God acts in big ways, and Cecil B. DeMille captured it with cutting-edge special effects. Cutting-edge for 60 years ago, if you go back and watch it again. One thing the movie does not help us do is it does not help us imagine that God could work in little ways. Everything in this movie is big, and every time God shows up, it's big. But the passage we just read and the next couple chapters we're going to look at are actually all about God showing up in little ways, in unexpected ways. Now, to get the full appreciation for this, we need to get a little bit of a backstory, which is a review. We remember that God the King created everything by the power of His Word, even us. And He gave His people free reign in this garden with one exception, don't eat from that tree. And they rebel against the king, they eat the forbidden fruit, and because of that, the whole world falls into chaos and rebellion. Even though they turn their back on God, God continues to pursue them. And immediately God sets into action a plan to save these people who have rebelled against Him. This plan gets enacted over and over again, One of the most dramatic places where this is made clear is with Abram, where God shows up and makes a covenant with Abram and says, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to bless your descendants, and eventually I'm going to bless all people through you. And then God seals this covenant and guarantees it in a blood covenant, which God says, I will sacrifice my life in order to guarantee the keeping of this covenant. And so God guarantees that his promise of blessing is eventually going to go from Abraham to Abraham's descendants and then all the way to us. Now, I got a little chart. I thought it might be helpful if we had a little visual aid for some of this today. So I drew some pictures for you. I I know they're small, but I'm hoping you're still going to be able to recognize these individuals, okay? Can you recognize who this is? Abram, okay? And then Isaac... And then, I had no idea I was such a good artist. (laughs) You guys are great. Okay, 
And this is a formula that we're going to hear repeatedly in Scripture. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're going to hear it in the passages we're going to read again in a few minutes. This, passage, this covenant, this promise of God gets promised. This promise of blessing goes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And then Jacob one day wrestles with God and his, gets his name changed to what? Israel. And then Israel has 12 sons. Can you name 12 sons? If you couldn't do the Ten Commandments, I'm going to guess you can't do the 12 sons. Okay? We're only going to focus on one of the 12 sons, Joseph. Remember? Joseph, does that look like him? Joseph was Jacob's favorite. Remember the multicolored coat and all the dreams? He was a dreamer. Said his brothers were going to bow down to him, which doesn't go over well with brothers. So they, they sell him into slavery. So Joseph eventually ends up in Egypt. Now, at any point in this, there's these questions that come up about, what about the blessing? What about the promise? Is this going to continue? There's so many things that happen in the meantime here. I invite you to go read from Abram in Genesis 12 all the way up to Exodus 1. You'll get some of that backstory filled in. But we're up to Joseph now, and this passage that we just read tells us, and then Joseph dies. And we're left with a question. Now is God's blessing going to get carried on, especially in light of the fact that we're told a new Pharaoh comes to, comes to power, a new king of Egypt, and he doesn't appreciate all that Joseph did. Remember, Joseph saved the Egyptians. He had the dream about the famines, and he said, if you'll store up for seven years, then you'll have enough for seven years to come. And in this amazing twist of plot, Joseph's brothers actually have to come to Egypt to get food from him. He gives them the food and then invites them all to come live in Egypt, and they do. And we're told in this passage it was 70 people. Now, the people were fruitful and they did multiply so that the number of people in the family of Israel grows very rapidly. In fact, some would say miraculously, when you start to calculate the numbers of people involved in these equations, it seems like it's almost impossible for this to go from 70 to, to thousands, tens of thousands. Some predict hundreds of thousands of people in Egypt. They were so numerous that the Egyptians were afraid. They say, there's more of them than there are of us. And this wasn't a very peaceful time, so there was always a risk of the, someone coming in invading, and they, uh, Egyptians were constantly at war, and they thought, well, if these people of Israel then join our enemies, they'll rise up against us, and we'll be defeated, and they'll leave. So they decide that they're going to oppress them. They're going to treat them harshly. And in the middle of this harsh treatment, we ask this question, how will God bless them. How is God going to keep his covenant, the one he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? How are all people going to be blessed through this? This is actually the question that goes on throughout the book of Exodus, because it appears that there's so many moving pieces, and it doesn't look like all these things are moving in the right direction. We could lose hope. What if the midwives follow Pharaoh's command and kill off all the sons? You could wipe out an entire nation within one generation. What if the sons of God don't survive and God's promise ends right here? These are questions that you've got to wonder about. But here's what happens. The midwives, however, we're told, feared God and they did not do what the king of Egypt said. 
they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt noticed there's still a lot of little Hebrew boys around. Why is this happening? So he summons the midwives in. Why have you done this? The midwives essentially lie to Pharaoh. Well, these women are hardy women, not like you Egyptian. He actually lies and insults the Pharaoh and his women all at once. They give birth before we can get there. So God blessed the midwives, and even in the middle of this hardship, he increased the people so that they became more and more numerous. The people of God have been blessed, and they have multiplied many times over. So actually, Pharaoh's plan backfires, and what he thought would squash them down actually causes them to be more fruitful and more abundant and more prosperous, more blessed. And here's what happens next. Go to chapter 2. Now a man of the tribe of Levi named married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant, and she gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. And then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe with her attendants, and they were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds, and she sent her female slave to go get it. She opened it, and she saw that it was a baby, and he was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Just then, his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get someone of the Hebrew women to nurse this baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's own mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I'll pay you. So the women took the baby and nursed him, and when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. You couldn't make this up. This is such a great story. These midwives defy Pharaoh and spare the sons. So that, lo and behold, down the way, this Levite man and his wife have this little boy, and they actually do what Pharaoh said and put the boy in the river. And then his daughter draws it out and has pity on this little child. And then this little girl steps in and says, hey, I can help you with this. And then Pharaoh ends up paying Moses' own mother to raise him. So now we're back to our little chart here, and I drew a picture of Moses right down here. That's not Charlton Heston. That's Moses, okay? So where the story might have ended, if you go back and read the things that happened to Joseph, at any point it could have ended, and God's people would have been lost. Now we have Moses, but it still doesn't look good. Pharaoh is still in charge. The people are still enslaved. Moses doesn't have any unique power or special ability. Now he's living in the household of Pharaoh. Is God going to do something about this? Is he going to bless his people? Is he going to rescue them? Chapter 2, verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were, and he watched them at their hard labor. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and it was one of his own people. Looking this way and that to see that no one was there, he killed the Egyptian, and he hit him in the sand. The next day he went out and he saw two Hebrews fighting, and then he asked the one in the wrong, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, 
Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me the same way you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and he thought, well, this must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill their troughs to the water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and he came to their rescue and he watered their flock. When the girls returned to their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early? And they answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Rule asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to come have something to eat. And Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I've become a foreigner in a foreign land. It's kind of a good news, bad news section of Scripture because, you know, Pharaoh's bamboozled by these women, the midwives and the, his own daughter and Moses' sister and Moses' mother. But ultimately, Moses has to flee. He feels like his life is in danger. Things are not good for Pharaoh, but they don't look particularly good for the people of God either. In fact, if you've been paying attention to these first two chapters as we're reading them, God hasn't even been mentioned in any of these passages. There's not like a big moment. Uh, There's not one of these spectacles of God showing up to do something. We've got normal people doing normal things, living out their lives. And of course, you know, we're getting just the high point of the normal. There's a lot of normal in between the normal. So what we have is like everyday people doing everyday things, and there's no sign of God showing up at all. We wonder if he's going to do something big. God seems like he's maybe not paying attention or he's out of town. And maybe we prefer stories like God doing big things. We want God to show up and write on the wall and tell us exactly what to do. It's hard if we have to live our normal lives day by day by day and just keep doing the things that God calls us to do. I think that's why we like chapter 3. Maybe that's why Alan wanted us to get to chapter 3, because here's where the big stuff starts happening. But you don't get to the big stuff without all the everyday, daily, day-by-day, grinded-out, normal, mundane stuff happening. Listen to the rest of the story. During the long period the king of Egypt died, the Israelites groaned in their slavery. They cried out. They cried for help because of their slavery, and their cry went up to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Do you suppose this is the first time they groaned in all those years? I doubt it. I don't understand God's timing. I don't always know how God is at work. Often I don't know that God is at work. But here's the good news. When the Israelites groaned in their slavery, God heard their cry, and he was concerned about them. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. 
Moses saw that the bush was on fire, but it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why this bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent you. God draws his attention right back to this covenant, to this promise, where he says, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to go do things. And then God does some big things now, from the burning bush to the plagues to the dividing of the Red Sea to the meeting Moses on the mountain to writing the Ten Commandments. He does big things. But it seems to me we never get to the big things if we don't recognize that God was working in all the little things before that. Right? God works in big ways and small to guarantee that he will keep his promises. This is how God saved the nation. This is how God blessed the nation. So, my question is, how is God working in your life? Big ways or small ways? And I think most of us could probably point to a few key moments in our life when we'd say, we had a mountaintop experience. We met God. There was God in our midst. We saw God work in a miraculous way. We could point to a few of those. But I'm guessing that there are a whole lot more small, little ways that we could look back on our lives and say, God was there. And we don't get to the big ways unless God keeps working in all those little ways. This is one thing, uh, if I can make one more pitch, for the power of dwelling in God's Word. We think that as we dwell in God's Word, it begins to dwell in us. And one thing that God's Word does for us as we dwell in it is it shapes our imagination so that we can begin to imagine all the ways that God works. 
So we can begin to imagine that God could show up in big, dramatic ways and do big things. And we could begin to imagine that God is already working in all the little ways. Working through midwives who defy the Pharaoh. Working through little sisters who are quick on their feet. Working through mothers who are willing to nurse and care for their children. Working through people who grind out day after day after day following God's commandments. How is God working in your life? Big or small? I had um, lunch yesterday with a friend of mine who does not know the Lord. And he needed some encouragement. So we went to Wendy's and we chatted. And I gave him encouragement. And there was no big God moment. And I took him home and dropped him off. Was God at work in that moment? Can you imagine what little moments God is at work in your life as well? Lord God, we come before you today and I give you thanks for the truth of your word. We thank you that you speak to us And I thank you, God, for these good people, for their willingness to listen to you. And God, we thank you for the big ways that you work and for all the little ways that you work by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we give you our praise and thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's again come before the Lord with the things on our hearts this morning. Won't you pray with me? God, we praise you that you are the God of the big things and the small things. We praise that you are the God of all the things that's weighing on our shoulders this morning. God, in this room we pray over the broken relationships. Will you come and interact in those small ways and bring restoration? We pray over those who are struggling with finances. God, we know that you are a great provider so you come in the small ways and move in every situation in this room. God, we pray for those who are grieving over the loss of loved ones. We know you are God who brings big hope and great peace. So over those grieving, God, would you come in your small ways and bring that hope and that peace to those. God, for those who need jobs or are worried about their job, God, we know that you also provide in these ways. Would you feel a hope and a peace in those as well? And as they interact with coworkers and have stress in the job, God, would you come to those as well for relationships on the job? And God, we know that you have plans for this church, so we thank you for the leadership of this church and for the staff. God, would you move in us as those who are called to lead? God, we want to discern your voice. We long to hear you, to know you. As a church, we long to hear you and to know you. God, you know our desire as a church to be a people who know your word and are familiar with your word and walk in the ways of your word. So we continue to dwell as we continue to seek you out. Would you meet us as we read, as we worship, as we pray, as we get to know your scripture and recite it and memorize it. And all those things, God, as we dwell, won't you come and dwell in us. We are so thankful that you are the good father that you are. We praise you for your faithfulness. We praise you for your love. And God, we praise you 
for the small ways and the big ways that you are at work in us, in our lives, and in this church. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.